Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities across Canada. Our aim is to create a better awareness about Indigenous people to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Indigenous Roots and Roots. I'm Gordon Spence, your host. And today my guest is Trisha Logan. I'm just going to give you a little background information on Trisha before we start. Trisha Logan is the head of the research and engagement at the Residential School History and Dialogue Center at UBC. And she is, of course, appointed as an assistant professor at UBC School of Information. Trisha is a Métis scholar with more than 20 years of experience working with Indigenous communities in Canada. She has held roles at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, the Métis Center at the National Aboriginal Health Organization, the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, and the Legacy of Hope Foundation. She has a Master's of Arts degree in Native Studies from the University of Manitoba and completed her PhD in History at Royal Holloway University of London. Her PhD is entitled Indian Residential Schools, Settler Colonialism, and Their Narratives in Canadian History. Originally from Kakabeka Falls, Ontario, Tricia has worked with survivors of residential schools, completed research on Métis experience in residential schools, and worked with Métis communities on a midshift language revitalization project. Good afternoon, Tricia. Nice to see you and meet you. How are you? Good afternoon, Gordon. You're out in BC, University of British Columbia. Uh, maybe uh, you can just start a little bit about talking about who you are, like where you come from, your hometown, your family. I take it that you're a Métis person because you're a Métis scholar, right? So. Give us a little background about where you come from in your family. Uh, Trisha Logan, Ni Vancouver, but Thunder Bay, Kakabeka Falls, Ustinia. I'm originally from Kakabeka Falls, Ontario, which is just half an hour outside of Thunder Bay. And then I live here in Musqueam Territory, the traditional ancestral and unceded Musqueam Territory here in Vancouver, but lived in Winnipeg for the last 20 years as well. I'm um, Métis. My dad is Métis. Uh, his family and my family is originally from Labrette, Saskatchewan, but my dad was born in Fort Francis, Ontario. And my mom uh, immigrated to Canada in the 50s. She was born in Germany and is Polish and German. And I have been raised, I think, mostly Métis partly because that's my dad knew a lot about his own family history and studied his own family history a lot for a long time when we were young kids. And a lot of my mom's history, she's just learning now. She's just learning within the last 10 years or so, learning about her family. Uh, so I was raised in Métis communities and Métis families, as well as German and Polish families. And I uh, came through Kekbeck Falls to Winnipeg and now. Thank you. Did you say your father was uh, German? 
Or my mom. Your, father, your mother's German and Polish, right? Okay. Just got to make sure I have that straight. Now, you're a professor at the University of D.C. Tell us a little bit about your work there. Sure. I'm cross-appointed. I work both at the Residential School History and Dialogue Center, as well as the School of Information, which is information studies, library and archival studies. I teach a course there called Information Practice and Protocol in Support of Indigenous Initiatives. And I, while I'm not a librarian or I'm not trained that way, because I worked for a long time with uh, Indigenous communities and especially with archives, and libraries that deal with Indigenous peoples' collections and working directly with oral histories and records and documents and belongings from Indigenous communities. I, I try to share that knowledge with students here at UBC, new archivists, librarians, and informational professionals uh, to talk about how to work best with the collections of Indigenous peoples. How long have you been at UBC? Uh, not very long, just since about uh, January 2019. And before that, I was at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation in Winnipeg. Okay, well, why don't we talk a little bit about that? The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, is it still open? Uh, what, what is it doing now and what was your role there? Yeah, the National Center is partnered with the History Dialogue Center here at UBC. And I came to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation about a year after the TRC ended, uh, the TRC ended its work in 2015, and then there was always a plan there to build a national research center in Canada. Uh, there was always part during the TRC as it was going on, there was always a, a plan to create one central research center. And the University of Manitoba placed a bid and partnered with a lot of other institutions and universities like UBC to create a place to hold, especially the all of the survivor statements and to carry on the work of the Truth Reconciliation Commission after the commission was actually finished. Yeah, we have at the Legacy Hope Foundation, we, we actually have some of the survivor statements that we, we keep in an archive that uh, we hope to uh, release at some point. I think some of them are slowly being released right now on our, to our website. Mm -hmm. And uh, some very interesting statements made by uh, the survivors and what they had to go through. And the Truth and Reconciliation had a number of action items. There was, uh, how many were there? No, over 100, right? That 94. 94, about, yeah, that were recommended for government to take action on. I know there's a watchdog organization that keeps tabs on the progress of government and what they're doing. I'm not exactly sure how far the government is on those action items, but uh, they are, I understand, making some progress on some areas and some areas they haven't really done anything on. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about some of that and uh, how that's going, how those action items are being addressed? I think that it's definitely been addressed by all levels of government in different ways and in different, and some not at all, and some have, there's been big changes that have been made because a lot of the calls to action call directly on the federal, provincial, or municipal governments. Um, I've seen a lot, personally have worked with a lot of um, levels of government on call to action number 57, which is, it calls on all public servants, federal, provincial, and municipal public servants to uh, kind of engage with the history of residential schools about colonialism, but the, kind of a broader conversation about intercultural competency and um, broader conversations about social justice and human rights 
that I think we're meant to talk about residential schools and reconciliation, but then try also to broaden the conversation into talks about um, broader social justice issues and anti-racism. And I think there are different provinces, like some provinces, it's just new to them and they've maybe just kind of opened it up and picked it up <laughs> like in the last yeah. week or so. But yeah. then there's other provinces that as soon as the calls to action came out, they kind of put uh, some departments, different departments of different provincial governments really took a lot of big steps to create their own frameworks, to look, look at their own policies and say, I don't think our policies were really treating indigenous communities very fairly. Yeah. Uh, and they saw that they were kind of, they, they finally kind of had this motivation, this push through the call to action to change those, like and had this sat and rewritten those policies and kind of scrapped old ones that were very either oppressive or racist or uh, were simply not at all beneficial to uh, First Nations or Métis or Inuit communities. Yeah. And so I have seen levels of government do that. It, it's not consistent yeah. where there's, you know, some action uh, in one province, there isn't in another, and same with the federal government. But I think it's also, I try to frame the calls to action as a lot of them are very long-term. Like they're, some of them are worded uh, like the education ones. A lot of the calls to action are worded like in the next generation right. or in the next, you know, like within the next generation, like that's kind of the, the time frame they're looking at so that it's not necessarily a checklist of things. People can just say, Oh, done, done, done. But it's, it's things that government or community members or churches will have to keep looking at every year, every few months and keep uh, renewing. Yeah. Yeah. Does the uh, truth and reconciliation it's not a commission anymore. It's a center. It's called. Uh, are they the ones that kind of monitor the progress of these seventy ninety seven calls to action items? How are they like? How are they monitored besides the Indigenous Watchdog? I think what the National Center is doing a lot of the time, and I think a lot of folks that are working in research on residential school, like histories and res and reconciliation, are kind of responding to calls from government, from churches, from schools, from post-secondary institutions, from communities who want to change or who want to do it, who, who do want to address the cost of action. They've kind of been responding to them to, to help provide capacity, to help provide learning, to, to kind of make connections on it. And in that way, I think, have seen how communities and churches and government and have uh, done things or have not yeah. in the way that they've kind of responded to. <laughs> I think it's also responding and monitoring to the different parts of the 94 calls to action, mm -hmm. like the segments on child welfare, on education, on justice, some broadly have not been addressed enough. So I think it's like the national center or yeah. our center calling out where the government has kind of, or governments have fallen behind on, especially some sections. I don't know a lot of attention on justice, yeah. on um, health, uh, whereas there's other parts where education curriculum changes mm -hmm. um, have, have been doing really well. So it's yeah. responding to different sections of them, I think. So it is the, uh, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. They're the, they're the body that kind of monitors this uh, progress and uh, keeps the government, and the various levels of government accountable to these calls to action. I'm just trying to, I guess, understand how 
governments and how how other institutions uh, respond and how they keep tabs on their progress in terms of following up on these uh, 94 calls to action items. Is it the truth of reconciliation centered at justice uh, or... I don't, Ideally, I it, sh- it should be the governments themselves. It should be like there should be they're in the process of creating a national council for reconciliation. That's part of the calls is calling for national council, like a body within the federal government. And each province and territory, I believe, has has had or should be creating their own kind of accountability or their own measures to track uh, or monitor or be able to kind of. Uh, be accountable to the calls to action from their own governance. That should yeah. be what, what's happening. That's kind of what I'm trying to understand. And, you know, I mean, you know, often that there, when there's a commission or a, or a report that's done on Indigenous peoples, uh, it's kind of uh, left the government to take action. But, you know, many times they haven't done so. So I was just wondering, you know, uh, who, who's actually keeping uh, the governments accountable for for these for implementing these calls to action? The other area I wanted to touch on, and because you're a Métis scholar and you know you're a Métis person yourself, and you've done some work in uh, the Métis experience in residential schools, I didn't even know Métis people were forced to go to residential schools. I thought it was just First Nations. Uh, I myself am uh, a survivor of uh, the residential schools, but uh, I have a lot of Métis friends. Uh, I'm from uh, Manitoba, and so there's Métis settlements there, and uh, I have some friends from those settlements, but I've never known them to go to residential schools. And, and I, uh, I just learned about the Métis experience in residential schools when I started working at the Legacy Hill Foundation. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and I mean, like, uh, where did they go to school and how did this happen? Yeah, that's it's it's a there are a lot of similarities between like the day to day experiences that people had First Nations or Métis or Inuit people had. But then the way that Métis people were admitted to residential schools was often quite different because the schools were built with First Nations people you know, in mind. Some of the first rules, I guess, or the first guidelines for admission to to admit Métis children had to do with classing them as first or second class Métis kids. Like in short, if you were living close to a reserve or living like an Indian, then either you'd be more likely to be taken in. Like there were written like Department of Indian Affairs documents that documented that um, if you were living like an Indian, then yes, you should be taken in. But if you were living close to or in or next to a non-Indigenous community like with white people then, or living the country life, if you were farming, then maybe you didn't have to be taken in. Um, And then there was like a third class of Métis that they kind of made a class, the government created a class structure that would kind of decide which Métis kids went and which ones didn't. And it had to do with if you had a single mother or if you had a parent that, kind of like the social, like kind of like the 60 scoop kind of a a social worker or a priest or the police or RCP could judge if your family was able to take care of you or not. And so a lot of judgments were made on Métis families if they were living on a road allowance or living somewhere that a priest or a police officer deemed they should be taken and they'd be taken or they wouldn't. Um, There was kind of arbitrary that way. I was having this conversation earlier uh, just this morning about 
Métis kids going to residential schools or day schools or federal Indian day schools as well. And it's interesting how the rules that would be bent or not bent to allow Métis kids or stop Métis kids from coming in kind of manipulated, like because the schools were per capita, like they were funded per capita, like a school would get more money if they had more kids, they would fill up the school with more Métis kids because they would get more money. But then if the school was full and they'd have to move kids around, it would be the Métis kids that got moved to a different school or sent back to a different school. And there's a lot of survivors kind of have an anecdotal story about like, oh, I went to the provincial school and they said I was an Indian, so I had to go to the residential school. Then the residential school said, no, I'm a white person. I got to go back to the provincial school. Like, and those same kind of jurisdictional, the ways that Métis people kind of got shoved back and forth now reflect on how uh, Métis people are or aren't able to get compensation or were or weren't felt that they were involved in the Truth Reconciliation Commission or in the or in the settlement agreement for the same, a lot of those same uh, systems and structures, the, you know, government saying, you know, you're a provincial responsibility, no, it's a federal responsibility mm-hmm. and kind of uh, all those inconsistencies yeah. still repeat themselves. Yeah. Like the, uh, the residential schools was a, a federal initiative, but from what I understand, uh, Métis people fall under provincial jurisdiction when it comes to education. And, uh, so that's, uh, I, you know, I was kind of wondering how, how all that played out. And also there's the uh, issue of compensation that the residential schools students attended. I wonder, did the Métis get the same thing or were they compensated as well? Some did and some didn't. Of course, there were a lot of Métis survivors who shared their stories with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and with the Legacy of Hope as well with the, the Our Stories, Our Strength collection. And who told their stories, who shared their stories, whether they were, you know, that they wanted their stories recorded. Uh, Because a lot of Métis experiences were relatively, were unique, where they were treated as outsiders. They weren't really meant to be there. So the teachers or priests or nuns would treat them differently. Like they'd have to, you know, kind of sit in a different side of the room or they were kind of asked to clean up after class or kind of pay their way because they weren't being paid through treaty or they weren't being the federal government wasn't paying for them to be there so they would have to you know it seemed like a small thing to bring your lunch especially in residential schools where the lunches the food was horrific but because they were kind of treated differently you had you were expected to bring your own own lunch with you and kind of eat separately and a lot of kids remember having to go to the bathroom outside and not inside because Mm -hmm. that was for you know you're not you're not really supposed to be here and you were kind of separated and treated as separate. Um, That still reflects a lot of people don't really know what to do with uh, the Métis survivor uh, claims that they said because it wasn't a federal responsibility, then the government said, well, we have no responsibility for this. Mm -hmm. So a lot of survivors really advocated strongly to be included and to have their voices heard. And so a lot of times when you see Métis stories in there, that's, that's from the work the hard work of survivors coming forward and kind of want insisting that they be heard in the same spaces. Mm-hmm. You talk about also your, uh, in your biography that you done some work in the Michif language, which is the Métis language. I noticed that when you made your opening 
remarks that you spoke some the Métis, Métis language and uh, because I speak Cree and I can understand what you were saying. It, it's actually kind of like Cree, you know, and uh, I have friends that uh, that actually speak Métis, but I, had, I didn't even know it was called Métis at the time. I always thought it was Cree, but and uh, and you know they used to talk to each other in midshift language, and and I just laugh at them, and you know because I knew exactly what they were saying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, there, uh, so you were involved in uh, developing or revitalizing the uh, the midshift language. Was it across Canada, uh, or or was it just in one one area? Just in Manitoba, I was I was very, very fortunate. I got to take part in a master apprenticeship language program. At the time, I was working with the Métis Centre for the National Aboriginal Health Organization. Like the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, the, the National Aboriginal Health Organization was funded and then not funded. Um, but for a time, uh, I worked for the Métis Centre. And uh, through that, it was an amazing opportunity to be able to continue working uh, as part of my job, but to go and live in Camperville, Manitoba with two Michif speakers to try. And I'm not a linguist and I'm not someone that's really good at languages, which is why I'm retaking it now. Um, but uh, two elders, Michif speakers, Grace Soldi and Rita Flamond invited me to come and I was able to live in Camperville and learn Michif with them, mostly to see to kind of talk about how it, how adult learners with no language skills could learn a language by living with speakers. And so I was yeah. very, very lucky to be able to do that. Interesting because uh, my guest was Métis from Caprville. We actually had to reschedule the podcast with him till uh, next week. Uh, his name is uh, Kieran. Kieran. Oh, yeah. Come on. That's and, his uh, mom that I live with. That's yeah, I live with his mother, mom. Rita yeah. Flamand. Yeah. Rita. Yeah. And I was just talking to Kieran yesterday, and uh, we were talking about this Mitchell language revitalization project. He asked me if he was involved in it, and he said, no, it was with my mother, my mother's project. And uh, I know he told me that uh, his, his mother, Rita, had passed on, so I'm not sure if you, you were aware of that. She passed away a year or so ago. But she did a lot of work in Camperville. Camperville is a very unique place because it's, uh, and you, you've been there. Yeah. It's a, it's a real Métis community, right? In, in, yeah. in a true sense of the word. <laughs> uh, these people are, are just not Métis just because they have mixed blood. They actually live like Métis. They act like Métis. You know, their, their whole persona, their whole, their whole culture, their whole lifestyle is Métis, you know, the real Métis. And they love to play music, they love to dance, they love to sing, and, you know, you know you've been there, right? So you know what I'm talking about. So so what's this project, the Métis Métis Language Revitalization Project? Where would one find this? I mean, if somebody wanted to learn more about it, where would you, where would you, where would you go and find more information on it? Well, now, um... It's interesting how we've changed things with COVID because we can't sit in someone's house really or visit anymore. It's it's amazing how generous elders and language speakers have been with letting people come into their house over Zoom and over the phone and stuff. It's amazing. I was just modeling that type of way to learn a language 
because other people had done that before me. Like there had Rita and Grace both welcomed a number of different linguists and language learners into their homes. So I think increasingly now as different ways to pass on endangered languages or indigenous languages, people are using, you have, I guess it's to find, it's to be able to find a language speaker who speaks the language you are trying to revitalize or, or learn, who is able to, you know, share their home and share their time with you. I think that's the big part of it. And to make sure to take care of your elders and language speakers that, you know, that I was able to help get grant money to pay for their time and to, you know, to buy groceries for us to cook with and to make sure that there was some sort of support for it, that it didn't take a ton of money, that it didn't take a ton of time, but just finding that agreement, making an agreement with language speakers to share language that way, then it didn't necessarily need to be like school. Like it didn't need to be like a classroom, but just that I went and worked in the garden with Grace and I worked, mm-hmm. <laughs> sat by the lake with Rita and yeah, yeah. that uh, extreme generosity to yeah. share not only their language, but their home with you. Yeah. That's just the way they are. They're very friendly people. Yeah. <laughs> But is it like, like, is it a book or is it a publication that people can... can there are some, yeah, and, there's, yeah. and there are different forms of it from all different languages. And that's why I'm retaking it. I'm Right now I'm in, enrolled in the University of Manitoba again mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> to take online course because it's online, because of COVID, it's online, that I can retake Machef because it was yeah. so long ago. And I, as a language learner, I think for anyone, if you don't use it, you start to lose it. Yeah. So I've been coming back to it again and mm-hmm. listening to some recordings, but then also taking this class every Tuesday, Tuesday, Thursday. Uh, yeah. I sit in the, our teacher is Heather Suter. She is in Camperville right now. Mm-hmm. We listen to her from Camperville every day or yeah. almost, you know, every second day. And she shares with us, through kind of like school zoom university style but i i am very very fortunate that i have kind of extra help with yeah. what i have learned through the immersion the master apprenticeship program yeah i think you just miss manitoba i do i do <laughs> every day in our like we uh Ishikishika, like we yeah what's the we kind of talk about the weather and i'm in vancouver uh-huh. and i'm like it's raining. It's raining. Yeah. And, and then, <laughs> is it cold there? I was like, yeah. it's not, it's not cold. People here think it's cold, but it's not. Yeah. Well, you actually speak it pretty good. You know, uh, I'm, I'm impressed with, uh, your ability and, you know, to remember it and be able to speak it and pick up the words. Yeah. So. Well, I think the most important part that Heather has done and that what Rita and Grace taught me a long time ago and what Heather is kind of trying to replicate even on zoom is, a community of speakers that I'm able to speak with my classmates that we have practice times and we have conversations. And even in the classroom, she's really, really tried to create a community, like a community of speakers that even though we're not all great at it, that we're just, we're practicing every day and just having a space virtual yeah. or not to just speak it. I think that's the biggest thing. I'm going to say with. something in Cree. <laughs> See if you understand what I'm saying. Tansi. I probably only understand the verb part. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's a... 
Ah, Nietzsche. <laughs> friends. Yeah, friends. Friends, yeah. Friends, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Egotewigwag. Egotewigwag. That's where they live. Where they live. I got friends in Canada. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little bit, I guess it's a little, you know, you can cast some words here and there, right? And uh, I guess, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong, pretty strong Cree speaker, so it might be challenging for you to understand the Cree that I speak as opposed to me. It'd be easier for me to understand Nichif than it would be for you to understand Cree. So... But and I, like, yeah, where I come from in Thunder Bay is uh, Ojibwe, is Anishinaabe, and so my dad speaks Anishinaabe, and there's little bits of Soto sometimes, or Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe will mow in in the Machif too, yeah, and so that's yeah. where I recognize words too, is right, yeah, when people speak yeah, Ojibwe. exactly, you know, uh, when people speak Ojibwe, I can understand or Soto. I can pick up what they're talking about, yeah, which is interesting. <laughs> but uh, a friend of mine told me, uh, actually, his name is Richard Kostamish, and he was a, he's a former president of, you might know him, yep. former president of the Legacy Hope Foundation. When I asked him what his background is, like his First Nation, he says, uh, I am uh, Anishinaabe. But he, he, he's not Ojibwe or Soto, or maybe he is, but I thought, but he said we're all Anishinaabe. The Crees, Soros, Ojibwe's, you know, Algonquins. Apparently that's, that's, that word came from, to me, all, all those nations together from the mother language of uh, the Algonquin language. So apparently we're all Anishinaabe. So... <laughs> Trisha, I got uh, maybe one more question for you. You know, they're talking a lot about reconciliation these days. That's kind of the buzzword now. People are gradually recognizing, you know, Aboriginal people and their place in this country and, and trying to. I know there are a lot of good people in this country that are making efforts to make Canada a better country to live in, you know, for everyone, all the Canadians. It's kind of what we try to do too. We kind of try to promote, try to build bridges, try to you know do things like in our in our work to to create a better understanding between Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people in this country. So when they say when they talk about reconciliation, what comes to mind for you? What do you think about reconciliation and trying to make Canada a better country for everyone? How do you feel about that? I, from where I learned about it, and then there's been a lot of people say a lot of different things about reconciliation now. Some people kind of uh, are just don't even want to use the word and say that there's we're not at a stage where we even can start talking about it. Yeah. Uh, but from my perspective, I actually, as much as I've worked with now with the Residential School History Dialogue Center and I worked with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, really where I gathered my my understanding and my knowledge about reconciliation i got actually from the legacy of hope the our stories our strength collection the the 600 survivor stories that have been recorded there i worked with that collection and studied that that is the bulk of my what i ended up being my phd dissertation but it ended up being a lot of my work 
uh, and learning about residential schools is all based on the stories that survivors shared through the Our Stories, Our Strength collection and their stories of how they felt in response to records. Because those recordings were taken at an interesting time. And that's why I, I really like to think about that because it was between 2004 and 2008-ish, like 2005, 2006, before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission started. So when people were talking about a new relationship they wanted to create with Canada or what they felt reconciliation was to them, whether it was that, whether that was the word they used or not, because I think the term reconciliation genuinely does come from survivors and survivor stories, no matter what they call it, what they call it change, what they're calling for is change, what they're calling for is education, what they're calling for is to be acknowledged. Survivors talk about that a lot, I think, as as part of their story is the way they share their story is uh, not just what they're talking about of what happened to them day to day or intergenerational impact, but it's how people share their stories. They said, I'm sharing this very painful story about trauma, about what happened to me in the schools, because I need people need to hear it. People need this needs to be acknowledged that it can't be a secret. It can't just be something talked about in Indigenous communities. People need to hear about this and acknowledged it. And a lot of people, I think it's over and over again, it was about education. It was about this can't be just about residential schools and this can't be just about uh, Indigenous people. This has to be about all of Canada. Yeah. All of Canada needs to know about this. You mean educating Canadians? Yeah. 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 All the Canadians yeah. need to talk about this and need to For know sure. about this. Yeah. Needs to be in our schools, needs to be in the curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. The last part of our uh, podcast, you know, our Metis, Aboriginal people, you know, have a terrific sense of humor and always <laughs> laughing at each other and <laughs> making jokes and, you know, telling funny stories. Uh, the last part of Roots and Hoots is, uh, is this part here, it's the Hoots part meaning something funny. Uh, I wonder if you have a, a funny story to, to tell or a joke for us to end this, uh, this session. <laughs> I It's funny because I was trying to think of a joke. I can't sing. There's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but um, you can try. it's funny. Cause, yeah, it's funny because I was trying to think of a machif, a joke I could tell in machif or or I could repeat or I could somehow, because I'm still a learner of the language. And honestly, honestly, there is not a Machif joke I could find that was suitable for broadcast because yes. they're all dirty jokes. Right. Yeah. I can imagine. I'm very of Yeah. I couldn't. Even the ones from the most sweet, adorable, kind hearted elders still tell the most terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, all I have is a recipe I can read out. Someone said, because okay. that's one thing I, uh, my grandma went to residential school and I think her mother also went to residential school. And I think the language they would have spoke would have either been Machif or would have been Eastern Dakota Sioux um, is what their languages that were taken from them in residential oh, school. Yeah. Her dad would have spoken a part, probably Machif and probably Dakota had they yeah. had her mother also not gone to residential school. Uh, but the thing my grandma learned in residential school was how to cook mm-hmm. and she cooked and baked very well. And this is actually the, if you're talking, I think you're talking to Kieran 
Flamand next week, eh? Right, yeah. Yeah, this is his mom's recipe. If I could read it out in Machif? Sure, yeah, go I ahead. Do it in Machif and in English? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. And I know no one really likes to share their bannock recipe. So this is there is a PDF of this online and okay. I'm not stealing I'm not stealing someone's secret recipe. So it's a, so it's a bannock recipe. Yeah, la galette, la galette. Okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And I know people are very protective of their bannock recipes, but so there is a there is a link to this uh, PDF link to this. So it is online. And it is published and printed, so I'm not sharing a secret, I promise. Okay, okay. So <laughs> okay. they can find it online. I'll try to do it quickly, too, so I'm not... <laughs> yeah, okay. Go ahead. Uh, la, la galette. La farine, trois bols. Three cups of flour. Le sel, un petit brin. Le, a few shakes of salt. Un gros chouillet au pied One tablespoon of baking powder. Or it's also poudre à pâté depending on if you use the Korean or you use the French. Les huiles, trois gros chouillet, three tablespoons of oil, de l'eau en bol, one cup of water or maybe a little more, a little less. Les fourneaux, quatre, cinq, cinquante et tachta, set the oven to 450 Fahrenheit. I don't know Fahrenheit. Et le premier trois quarts mamawinamic Gros plat. Mix the first three ingredients in a bowl. I'm reading this. Dans le mesure, make a well in the center of the flour. Acheta le huile, pied de l'eau dans le puits. Add oil, add the oil and water. Machi papachi etaya dans le mesure, start slowly from the middle. Kakeyao etaya mani. Mama kun nan dao jifwe. Kneaded about 10 times or so. Kaya ushayam mishtahi mama kun, but don't need it too much. Napakin ekwa chapu shiteo avec en fourchette kima en chuye. Flatten or pierce it with a fork or a spoon. Ahi dan puelon eki shishu pehut. Place it in a fry pan, probably a cast iron fry pan that you have greased. And Rita had this amazing fry pan that was uh, one of the Louis Riel, a Riel fry pan that her grandparents or ancestors would have given her. And so oh. she would bake it in a, a yeah. it had Riel stamped in the cast iron. Oh, okay. Uh, it was really cool. Yeah. Kashish dans le fourneau et cook bon kema trente minuit. Bake for 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah. And say, Fini. Wow. There you go. Matey style bannock. <laughs> By Trisha. So, Bobby. yeah, I can't sing and I can't tell clean jokes. So, okay. Well, thank you for taking the time, uh, Trisha. I've been talking to Trisha Logan. She's a Matey scholar, assistant professor at the University of BC. Um, again, thank you very much for taking the time to do this, Trisha. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.